Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئاتك أعمالنا من يبهيه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضل فلا هادي له شهد الله إله إلا الله وشهد أن محمد نبده رسول very essential part of our life. Uh, my talk inshallah will be approximately 20 to 25 minutes. Um, I've divided it into uh, three areas. The first um, area would be focusing on the principles behind taxation. We're looking at the, the system that we live under here, capitalism, and we'll also look at Islam. What is the viewpoint on this subject? Without understanding that, without knowing what is it we're trying to achieve, we're not going to be able to understand the detailed taxation. Thereafter, I will move on to the second part, which will look at the detailed taxation and the revenue, source of revenue we have in Islam, and I will contra- contrast that also with the system that we uh, live here. And thirdly, we will look at how in the state, or how Islam manages those funds or taxes. What is the body that is responsible for uh, managing and administering that. Okay, inshallah. So, <coughs> let's look at, first of all, the system that uh, we live under, capitalism, and the economic system. How do they look at the economic problem that we face as humans? Capitalism, their theory, or their principle states that human needs are infinite. Human needs are infinite and resources are limited. When we say human needs, we mean we want to buy things, we want to use things, we want to consume things. So I want, I want to buy some clothes, I want to buy a car, I want to buy a mobile phone, food, healthcare. These are all human needs. And they're infinite. People have so many needs throughout their life. But the resources that are used to meet them are limited. So if you look at that, uh, the metals that we have, you know, gold, silver, uh, you know, all of these metals, you look at natural resources that we have, they're all finite limited because the earth here is limited. So that, that is the reality of the point. So what they say is that, look, in order for us to meet the needs of the people, we need to increase the production of goods. Okay? So the means of production must be increased. We must be able to produce a lot of things very quickly at the lowest price. And this will take us to a position where we can meet the needs of everybody. And the proponents of this kind of theory, the fathers of capitalist economic system, are people like Adam Smith. Some of you may have heard about Adam Smith. He lived a few hundred years ago. And uh, he has this uh, classic book called The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776. And in that he outlines this principle, that we need to produce a lot of goods, the people can go to the market and buy those goods and services, to fulfill their needs. And this is how they're going to solve the economic problem. And the factories must be set up, production plants must be set up, 
to produce these goods as many as people need. Now, this is the principle upon which they um, uh, push their, um, their, their system. So let me give you an example to illustrate how they see it. If you take a town with 1,000 people, and they estimate, the capitalist, that we will need 1,000 loaves of bread to meet the needs of the people every day. So they simply go and they make sure that the system produces 1,000 loaves of bread every day. Six o'clock in the morning, the bakeries have baked the bread and is ready to go in the market. And that's it, they've done the job. 1,000 people, 1,000 loaves of bread, and they say that the market will automatically distribute that, and everybody will be happy, and they will meet, that will meet their needs. Of course, the reality is very different, and we can touch on that a bit later on, because, you know, how do you get those 1,000 loaves of bread to the people? But in principle, that's what they say. And this is their way of solving the problems in society. Now, let's contrast that to Islam. What does Islam say about this area? From the Islamic perspective, we do acknowledge that human needs are infinite, and the resources are limited, because this is reality. You know, Earth is finite, universe is finite, and for sure, that's a reality. And we accept that. But our belief, what Islam tells us, is that Allah has given us enough to meet our needs. Allah is the one who gives us rizq. Allah is the one who gives us the things that we need to survive. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has stated that He guarantees that this for everybody. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا مِن ذَبَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا And this is in Surah Hud, verse 6. The meaning of which is, there's nothing, no living being on earth, except that Allah provides the risk for that being. So, what we conclude from that, and of course there are many other ayat and many ahadith on the subject, what we conclude from that is that there are, there are plenty of resources for the needs of human beings. So it's not a question of means of production, but rather it's a question of how we distribute those resources to meet the needs of people. So it's the problem of distribution, not of production. So Islam focuses on ensuring that every person in society gets their needs met. And for that, we want to make sure that nothing gets held back. And indeed, in Islam, hoarding of things and piling up things and not distributing, it's not permitted. Islam encourages us to distribute our wealth, to make sure the wealth circulates in the society. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, كَيْلَ يَكُونَ دُولَةً بَيْنَ الْأَغْنِيَاءِ مِنْكُمْ And it's talking about the funds and it's talking about the wealth, that it should not be hoarded or remain uh, with few people, otherwise it will be a circuit amongst the wealthy people. So in other words, we're pushing this idea, Islam is pushing this idea that the wealth must be distributed. So, we focus on distribution. So let's go back to the example of that 1,000 people in a town. So from Islamic perspective, <coughs> we say that yes, there are 1,000 people and they need the bread. But not every single person needs one loaf of bread each every day. That's the reality. One individual living alone, he may consume half a loaf of bread every day. And if he consumes the whole, he'd probably have a belly like mine. Okay? And there are other people who may, who may need more loaves of bread. So a family, perhaps, they have a large number of children. Okay? So Islam says, no, we have to look at each individual. And we have to see what is their need, and we have to meet that need. 
And unless we distribute that properly, we are not going to be able to help the people there. So the outlook of like of the capitalistic economic system is that we produce enough, we leave it to the free market, and everybody can buy their, their uh, products and services from that, and that will meet the needs of people. Now, when it comes to taxation and the role of the state in that, it's a very minimal role. So the capitalists say that it's a very minimal role. And this is from the idealistic principles we're talking about here. So the person like Adam Smith, in his book, if you ever read it, he stresses heavily that the role of government is minimal. The government should not interfere with people's lives. Hence, the need of taxes is minimized. That's the theory. So it goes. From Islamic perspective, you know, our view is that no. We have to make sure that everybody gets taken care of, every individual in the society. Okay? And therefore, the role of, you know, circulating, uh, sorry, the, uh, the function of circulating the wealth and the role of the government and the role of institutions become very important. Taxation, revenue, funds, all of this big subject becomes quite critical for us. So let's move on to now, but understanding this principle, let's move on to the taxation and let's look at the details, the various kind of taxations we have, both under capitalism here and, and uh, under Islam. So let's start with the system here. So let me open it up a little bit uh, with everybody. So who can name the kind of taxes we have here in the system? Anybody? What kind of taxes we have? Council tax. Council tax, yes, that's one. Okay, anybody else? Any? Income tax. Value added tax. Congestion charge, yes, that's a good one. Inheritance tax, now that's a nice one. Okay, property tax, yes. Excellent. So, capital gains, okay. So, corporation tax, absolutely. National insurance, yep, perfect. Fantastic. God, an ending, huh? How many more to go? <laughs> it's a nightmare, right? Well, with all of the many stealth taxes we don't actually know about, but they're there. Oh, they're there, actually, yeah. So, let me... Road tax. Road tax. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, if you've got television at home and you want to watch BBC, <laughs> TV tax, right? <laughs> Road tax, as mentioned before. Yeah. Petrol. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so even living here, we can identify probably, I think, probably, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 different kind of taxes that we know about. And this is the reality we live under. That they consume, the government brings in a lot of money from people. And if you look at the numbers, actually, they're vast numbers. 2015 and 2016, the government here pulled in five, sorry, 672 billion pounds in taxes. And these are taxes that you mentioned which are known and which is common, like income tax, net insurance, VAT, uh, and a few others. But a lot of the other taxes perhaps are hidden away, which are not on the numbers here. So it's almost reaching up to 700 billion pounds of taxes. How are they spent? Well, we can discuss that in Q&A. But it's a pretty... Um, and we just heard now that the Queen is going to get how much? 370 odd million pounds as well from taxpayers' money to improve her palace, right? Anybody read the news? I'd rather hear, as I mentioned this morning, of course, is. So there you go. It's never-ending. Okay. So that's the reality of this country here. But let's focus on Islam now. Because this is one area we really want to talk about and understand. So how do we in Islam um, get the revenue that we need to manage the affairs of the people? The kind of taxes, the kind of revenue, the expenditure, and so on. So 
In Islam now, I'm going to give you uh, the different ways that the state raises the revenue. Now, I don't call all of that tax, because the word tax actually has a, a particular meaning. But let me also use the word revenue as well. Um, I think, and I will discuss that later. And what I'm going to tell you now is not in any, one, any, in any, that's any particular order. These are just different kind of revenue sources that we have. So, one of the revenue sources that the state has is Ghanima. Ghanima is war booties. It's the property, it's the money, it's the wealth that we get from the battlefields. Okay? Now, in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba, in those days, when people used to go to battle, they used to take everything they had with them. There were no regular armies paid soldiers, that did not exist, there were no aircraft, there were no carriers so people when they went to jihad people took their belongings with them okay, a lot of the wealth with them and vice versa and also for the non-Muslims as well, they used to bring all of the stuff with them and in those battles, whoever is the winner will take a lot of the wealth and from the Muslims, it was permitted for them to take from the uh, battlefield, what they can claim from the non-Muslims. And this is known as Ghanima. The other word that is used is Anfal. The word Anfal is also synonymous with Ghanima. So you can use either of the words um, for this. So this is one source of revenue that the state had in the past and can have potentially in the future. What we get from the battlefield. Now, if we are going to war with another uh, a nation, um, but the kuffar, the people, the enemies of Islam decided to flee, decided to leave what they have or decided to agree with us and give us their property, their land, their wealth then that is known as fa'i so it's a different terminology this is what we acquire from the non-Muslims without fighting, without actually you know, physical uh, means so ghanima is when we go into battle and we win and we get the wealth from the enemy, which comes into uh, towards the Muslims. Fa'i is when there is no physical conflict and they leave us the property or they hand over to us their property or the wealth uh, in exchange for peace or they flee and we get that. So we have Ghanima or Anfal and we have uh, Fa'i, which is another source. We also have Jizya. Now Jizya is the uh, had tax that non-Muslims pay who are living under the authority of Islam Jizya is charged on them simply because we want to give them protection you know, their life their property their wealth, like the Muslims is safeguarded under Islam and in order for us to make sure that they recognize that Islam actually charges them Jizya Jizya is a, a small amount of money for the non-Muslims and uh, just to give you an example of uh, how much jizya uh, Omar bin al-Khattab charged in some areas um, he used to charge four golden dinars okay, to the wealthy non-Muslims as jizya per year now how much is that worth in today's uh, reality? one gold dinar is worth, uh, or rather is equivalent to 4.25 grams of gold now the price of one gram of gold today is about 32 pounds okay so if you multiply that four golden dinars times about 4.25 who's mathematician here? okay I'm not, anybody? alright that's about 85, 87 grams right? times about 32 so it comes to about 540 odd pounds 
So 540 pounds is what the non-Muslim pays jizya to the state in return for giving him security or giving that family security, which is really peanuts. I mean, 500 pounds isn't much, and that's the only tax they pay. Of course, we as Muslims we have other responsibilities and are very far, far greater than that. So jizya for the wealthy people at that time, Omar used to charge them in today's money 540 odd pounds, and for the person who is not very rich, he was charged two dinars. And that translates to about 260 pounds. And a non-Muslim who doesn't have much income, he would pay one dinar. That'll be 136 pounds. So it's a small tax. It's not a heavy duty tax for the non-Muslims that they are burdened with. But this is a source of income. Now, of course, um, vast areas of the Muslim land at the beginning had a lot of non-Muslims and they were paying jizya. And that's also a source of income that we take and we use um, for, uh, for, for, the, for, for the state. The other type of income that we have, um, which is known as haraj. Now, lands that we have taken as a result of jihad, okay, physical jihad, those lands that have been conquered, um, there, um, the people there pay jizya. And those lands um, remain uh, as, um, sorry, uh, they pay haraj. They remain, they remain Kharaji land until their judgment. So any land that we have taken by force, the produce of that land, and we're talking about the crops, we're talking about you know, all of the, uh, of the uh, 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 food stuff that's grown on them, is known as Kharaj. And that is something that we tax the people there, and the people will pay some amount of that towards the state. Now, most of the Muslim world today that we live in actually is a Kharaji land because most of it was opened up as a result of jihad. The areas that were not opened up by physical means perhaps some parts of Arabian Peninsula, of course, uh, you know, Medina and Hejaz area and so on, uh, and you have the Far East, the Far East meaning Malaysia, Indonesia, and you know, some of the surrounding areas. So there are some areas which were not opened by force, which people, where people willingly accepted Islam, but if you look at Egypt, North Africa, you know, you looked at Asham, which is today's uh, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, uh, Iran, okay, and you look at uh, chunks of India, or if not all of India, uh, Pakistan, and so on, all of that range, all of that came as a, as a result of jihad, where we instigated um, the armies to go, whether we actually battle took place or not, but the fact that, that we sent the armies. So those lands are known as Haraji lands. So whatever is produced on that land, there is a certain percentage which the state will get from those people. Even now if that land comes under the Muslims. So if you had non-Muslims living there in the past, and they have sold that land, or if they become Muslims, but the land remains Haraji land, and they will continue to give the... Um, uh, the income or the revenue uh, to the state. The other source of revenue for another is, is known as usher or ushri. Usher basically is the tax that we get from the produce of lands which were not opened by force. And this is the Arabian Peninsula, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. And here the rate is different. It's, it's 10%. Usher, ashra comes from 10. So anything, any land that is irrigated by rain, we get 10% of that produce, and if you have to irrigate it by mechanical means, you know, you use the water, then 
it's half of that is 5%. By the way, the uh, kharaj is not uh, limit, it's not specified any percentage. The state uh, can determine how much a percentage we need from the people there. Of course, based on what the needs are. Of course, we cannot take everything from them. People need to live, people need to, you know, survive and so on, and the state will not be harsh on that. So we have to examine the reality of the people and based on that we charge them. So, but the kharaji, the, the percentage would vary, and that depends on the, on the state. We also have zakat, of course, this is uh, the most popular and the most famous. Everybody talks about zakat as the, uh, as the basis of economic system of Islam. Actually, zakat is one of the components of that. Okay? An essential component, but we have the other sources. So zakat is one of the components. And without going into the details of that, because everybody is aware of what is zakat, um, zakat essentially is 2.5% um, uh, that the Muslims pay above nisab. Nisab is a certain limit that if your wealth that you have um, you have for one year goes above a certain limit, then you pay 2.5% of that to the state. If your wealth remains below the nisab limit, then there's nothing to pay to the state. Now, zakat itself um, it's administered by the state. The order is for the state to collect that. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered the rulers in Surah Tawbah verse 103 it is commanded so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding the rulers to take khudmin take from the sadaqah of the people which is basically for the zakat and we know from the verse of uh, uh, from the Quran in Surah Tawbah which is verse 60 on the 8 categories of which the zakat is to be paid Again, we'll come with the details of that later. But just briefly, you know, it's, it's the fakir, it's the maskeen, okay? Um, it is the one who is in debt, it's the slave, it's those whose hearts need to be reconciled. People are not sure about Islam, we are bringing to Islam. Um, it is the traveler, and it's the fi sabilillah. Fi sabilillah, he also includes jihad, and so on. So zakat actually is a, a very essential component of the revenue that Muslims pay. Uh, moving on from that, the other sources we have, uh, we have state and public properties in Islam. Now, the properties, the lands and so on, um, we get, uh, they get divided into two areas. We have those properties or lands where, uh, which, whose ownership cannot be to any particular individual. So if you take the example of like the rivers, okay, you take the mountains, uh, these kind of things, by their nature, cannot be owned by anybody. And the Muslims share in that, the benefit of a river. People can irrigate their land, people can drink from that, people can do whatever they need from the, from the rivers. And the river is something that nobody can own. So Islam has actually made the responsibility of management of these public properties to the state. No individual can own them, but everybody benefits from them. So the state will manage these things, and that also includes your mineral resources and we're talking about here oil we're talking about gas okay because these things cannot be owned by one person these are resources which get replenished if you take some out you get more of it because there's plenty of it under the ground hence Islam does not allow a single person to own unlike today's reality where we find in the Muslim world a certain families are sitting on the world's biggest oil reserves and that's their personal property you know, 
Um, I was in Saudi Arabia many years back working there and some people there told me that when King Fahad died yes people were told that his personal wealth was 80 billion US dollars now how on earth can a person who has never worked for anybody acquire 80 billion dollars this is Ummah's wealth that oil belongs to every single Muslim in the world so these kind of resources, the benefit of that goes to the Muslims, but the state should manage them, and so on. You have also uh, buildings and other commercial entities owned by the state, and any revenue generated from that will be utilized um, by, by the people. So public properties and state properties are also another uh, source of income. You also have something called arikaz, which is basically a uh, percentage of tax, the fifth, which is 20%, we charge on any person who finds any hidden treasures. So if you're living in a, you know, in a part of the world where there's a lot of treasure and you bump, you know, you stumble upon, upon some treasure, some diamonds or whatever, fine, this is yours, but 20% of it goes to the state property coffers. So the cars is the fifth, is 20% you must pay to the state. Also the property of apostates. If somebody becomes murtad, by the way, okay, in under Islam, he has three days to repent. If he or she does not repent, does not come back to Islam, then that person gets dealt with by Sharia, okay, and their property then becomes property of the state. The other source we have is the property of those Muslims who leave no inheritors. So you might find some people who have no families. They die, they have a house, they have a car, they have other wealth, they have land. What happens to that? That goes to the state. And it's another source of revenue. And we have customs. By the way, we have tax also on the borders. So any trade that happens between the state and foreign nations, there is border tax. And the state can impose a certain amount of duty on that. That goes straight to the state's coffers as well. And lastly, we also have direct taxes on people. And this is the area where we can discuss a lot more in detail because in origin, taxing people is not something that state did. Islam does not encourage us to tax people directly because we have other sources of, of revenue for the state and that should be enough. And it was enough in the past to manage the affairs of the people, to look after the affairs of the people. But as time goes on, as time went on, you know, the structure of our societies have changed. Okay, we have become very complicated, uh, the societies have become very complicated, the states have become very complicated. So today, armies are funded by the state. They have heavy machinery, they have planes, you know, they have missiles, they have uh, aircraft carriers. So here, no individual can own these. In the past, when you went to jihad, you had your horse, you had your sword, and other items, and this was from you, your personal wealth. The state did not provide these to you. But today, this is not the case. So today the governments are there spending heavily in managing these things. And then you look at the healthcare, hospitals, clinics, and these things are normally managed by the states today. You look at the education, we have a lot of universities, colleges, schools. Again, individuals don't, uh, by and large, teach their kids and their parents at home. I mean, few probably do, but vast majority cannot do that. So the governments have stepped in and they've set up this kind of education system. So a lot of that needs funding, a lot of that needs money. So the sources of revenue that I've mentioned here, Ghanima, Fai, okay, 
you know, jizya, ushr, okay, haraj, zakat, all of these sources, and the various public and state properties, and vikas, and so on, this may not be enough for us to fund, to manage the affairs of the people. So in this case, you know, there is a case for the state to actually impose direct taxes on people. Okay? So, <coughs> the question then arises, well, who manages all of these funds? Who manages all of this revenue that's coming into the state? You know? Who gives us the grants? I mean, who decides on where, what money goes where? So, in Islam, uh, we have a very different concept to the capitalistic system. So in capitalism here, you have various ministries who are managing the funds, and some of them are probably managing independently. Now perhaps some of you who work in the civil service here, or in the financial sector, probably can tell me better, or tell the brothers here much better of how their funds are managed, but as far as I can see, that there's a huge department, they're all like mini-governments, they all have budgets, and I guess they all can charge people uh, the finances directly. So this is as we see today. A lot of corruption, a lot of inefficiencies are here. In Islam, we have one entity that manages all the funds in the state, and that is known as Bayt al-Mal. Bayt al-Mal can be considered as a central treasury. Uh, it's more than a bank. It's not just a central bank. Central banks of today, under capitalism, perhaps regulate the currencies, perhaps issue notes and coins, manage the, uh, you know, the value of the currency and what have you, okay? So it's a supervisory kind of role, management role. But in Islam, Bayt al-Mal does not only deal with the currency issues, the minting of the coins, the dinar, the dirhams and so on, but it also actually is responsible for collecting the revenue, the revenue that I've mentioned, okay? And also on the expenditure. So, in Islam, we find that we have various divisions and historically, if you look at it as well, we find that um, the various uh, sections were set up under Bayt al-Mal. Now, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was no building called Bayt al-Mal. There was no physical building out there. Because whatever revenue Rasulullah used to get, he ﷺ used to distribute on the same day to everybody. Because the Muslims were small, it was a very small state in Medina, and it was much easier to deal with people. Okay? Because a few numbers. And this continues in time of Abu Bakr. Again, when things came in, the money came in, the revenue came in, it was distributed very quickly. But by the time we got to Omar, the Islamic lands have expanded. The armies were, you know, reaching the other empires, the Romans and the Persians, and a lot of the land came under our conquest. A lot of the revenue began to flow in, and it was not physically possible to actually distribute everything on the same day. And therefore, they began to set up buildings where they can actually bring in the treasures and the gold and whatever needs to be done. And then they began to set up diwans. Now, some of you may have heard the word diwan. Diwan basically is an institution or a department. Diwan is also used as register, by the way. The word diwan can also be used where you register accounts and so on. But diwan is also um, um, a, a division or a department. So the same word can be used for both of them. So they began to set up diwans, okay, to record all of the revenue of the state is coming in because it was important otherwise they will not fulfill the obligation how are you going to distribute that money to which people so census was started 
under Omar. Census means people. Who is who? How many uh, people you have in your family? Where do they live? What is your status? Do you need zakat? Do you don't need zakat? And so on. So this was started and it was recorded. So this whole concept actually developed over time. Uh, the, the physical infrastructure, sorry, developed over time. But the concept of Baitul Mal was there from the Prophet Okay? But the functionality and the structure of it, you know, expanded as we went along. And so, how do we envisage going forward in the state? We envisage that you will set up divans or divisions or departments which will collect revenue. So you might have a division that's going to be responsible for Fai and Haraj. You might have another division which will be managing the public properties and you have another division that will manage Sadaqah. So you may have three divisions <coughs> within Baitul Mal that manages the revenue coming in. And then you have other divisions who are responsible for the expenditure. And this could be the Diwan of the Khilafah House, the administration of the state rulers. Um, the government administration needs expenses. So there will be a division solely dedicated to them, the various government departments and the employees. Uh, there will be Diwan of Grants, you know, we need to give grants to people for various things and when discussed in Q&A about grants and that is a separate division that needs to focus on uh, the one of Jihad you know, Jihad is a permanent feature in Islam it's one of the pillars and that will continue inshallah once the state is established it's a hukum, it's an obligation and that needs funding we need arms you know, we need to so develop that capability it needs money, it needs expenses, it needs funds so a, a separate division will be there uh, managing the, uh, um, the funding for, for jihad and also the division of sadaqat you know how do we provide the zakat to the eight categories of people mentioned and make sure that it gets there so we need a department that manages that and then you'll have some divisions which will be actually doing the budgeting the accounting okay of the expenses now if you've got billions of equivalent of pounds coming in billions or hundreds of billions are coming in you need some sort of accountability in that and the reality is you know that we need people to manage, monitor, check check the balances must always be there now of course we like to believe that in the state you know alhamdulillah the Muslims will be very good and they will be very pious people but the reality is that you know some people may do something wrong perhaps uh, there's inaccuracies, maybe there's mistakes made deliberately or otherwise so check the balances must be there so there's a division that actually also manages that as well and so on and there will also be a division for emergencies earthquakes you know these kind of things may happen and the Muslim world is uh, also suffering from these as well so uh, we are some of our land is on the um, fault lines and these things happen and other emergencies could be flooding and so on and these need to be taken care of and the funds are, uh, funds are needed for these uh, areas and so on so there will be divisions for collecting of revenue there will be divisions for the expenses and Bethel Mal will manage and supervise these. So this is the central uh, function of Baitul Mal and that is the way we'll manage, uh, uh, manage these funds. So, I hope I've given you just some brief outline of our vision of how do we solve the problems of the people. The focus from Islam is the distribution of the wealth and all of our taxes, all the revenue that we get actually is now spent on distribution of the wealth in various ways. Bait al-Mal is the, uh, is the key kind of entity that deals with that and manages these funds. Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit 
islampodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sira are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment, and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.